Welcome to a special episode of the CEC Report. It's the 12th of July. I'm Robert Barwick. And welcome back to my special guest, Philip Seuss of LF Economics. Welcome, Philip. Great to be here, Robbie. All right. Last time Philip was on the show, we called it Only Fraud Can Turn Around Falling House Prices. That was about six weeks ago. So today we're discussing the banks have a green light for fraud, but will it work? So, Philip. Um, we, did, we, we discussed a lot last time you were here for nearly an hour and it's, a, and it's been a very popular uh, interview. And we had the interview in the context of a huge amount of hype, post-election hype, mm. the, the, the property market's turning around. And um, I must say, in my view, that you're one of the few that kept your head um, in, amidst all this hype. I called you up and said, what do you think? And you rattled off reason after reason after reason you think you thought it wouldn't work. And six weeks later... I think the uh, weight of evidence is on your side, right? Um, whatever little bit of hype there was there uh, is, is really petering out. And there's, a, there's, there's, there's a lot of headlines about little tiny things we're talking about. They're, they're making uh, mountains out of molehills. Oh, this could be the turnaround, green shoots, yada, yada. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's all fake. So let's just go through the, the sort of things that have happened. And we'll start off talking about the, the authorities, what they have done since we last spoke that is just panic actions. Like they are panicked like you wouldn't believe. And the first one is from the assistant treasurer, Michael Suka, probably Sucker, uh, last week telling the banks to loosen their lending standards, which when you hear that, I think, well, when I hear that, but I'm sure when you hear that, that's code for go back to the kind of fraud you were doing before. Oh, very much so, Robbie. It's clear that the establishment is in uh, real desperation at the moment. And uh, for the housing minister to to make such a call like this clearly shows he wants the banks to keep uh, lending out as much as possible to both uh, homeowners and investors uh, in an attempt to uh, reflate house prices. Because remind viewers again what the banks were doing. The the Royal Commission was was the change we saw. What were the banks doing with their lending before that that they, that that they had to tighten up and by how much? Well, previously to the Royal Commission, um, especially up to the peak of the uh, housing boom to, up to 2016, 2017, the banks were just lending out uh, huge sums of uh, credit to anyone who had a pulse. Yeah. Um, up to that point in 2017, the average loan-to-income ratio um, nationwide was about uh, eight to nine times and in Melbourne and Sydney, it peaked at uh, between 10 to 12 times um, income. So those are massive amounts of loans um, being originated by the banks. And it comes as no surprise that price, house prices, especially in Melbourne and Sydney, were hyperinflated uh, to peaks. Um, in fact, we know that Sydney uh, breached a million dollars for a median uh, priced home, which is insane. Maybe you would expect that in Monaco yep. or New York or yep. London or Tokyo, the global centres, but definitely not down here. No. Now, Suka said something to the effect that, if we find it, we'll put the exact quote on the screen, um, the expenses of a borrower have nothing to do with their ability to repay or whether they're going to default or not. And what do you think of that statement? It's a scam because we know that the banks have been using uh, income benchmarks like the household expenditure measure or the older Henderson Poverty Index. And 
through my research, uh, if you take the typical first home buyer household, they've got a disposable income, annual income of about $100,000, and they've got expenses outside of debts of around uh, $65,000. So about two thirds of their budget uh, uh, co consists of expenses. Yeah. So they have about $35,000 left over to spend on debt payments. But what the uh, banks will be doing with this household expenditure measure is using a very, very frugal, um, unrealistic estimate. Um, the basic variant is $34,000. So the effect of using that um, in the loan serviceability models is that it basically doubles the, si the maximum size of a loan that the typical first home um, buyer household can take on from about $400,000. It doubles that to about $800,000. Wow. And uh, so when the, tre when the Assistant Treasurer and Housing Minister is saying to the banks, because the banks, you know, they, they stopped doing that, right? The, and I think the, um, the, the statistic that came out the week Suka made this recommendation was credit growth has dropped to 3.7%, which is an all-time low, right? I think this figure's been recorded since the 1970s or something. Yep. And at 3.7% credit, credit, mortgage credit growth, you're not going to get prices back up. Well, that's why the establishment is panicking. Yeah. Um, we even saw this last year with um, uh, uh, some RBA officials uh, saying the same things. And when it comes to the interest rates, uh, I remember in late 2018, uh, Philip Lowe, the head of the RBA, said yeah. that the next interest rate move will be up. And yet we've seen two very quick uh, cuts in um, succession. And it's been said by some investment uh, bank analysts that we could see uh, 0 0.05 by the end of this year or uh, early next year. And you saw the headlines, didn't you, that this is um, housing is uh, as affordable now as it was in 1999 based on this serviceability. That's all they're thinking about. If we can, because all the things they're doing, what Sucre is telling the banks to do, what, or, or what Sucre is telling the regulators to allow the banks to do, what the RBA rate cuts mean, and also the APRA changes. They've, didn't they, haven't they brought forward their um, scrapping of the serviceability benchmark buffer from 7% down to you know, plus 2.5% of the, the mortgage rate? All these things, aren't they designed to allow the banks to go back to making bigger loans? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we saw in February uh, this year that the head of APRA, Wayne Byers, he said, regardless of how the housing market trends, our minimum 7% uh, serviceability rate um, uh, is set in stone. Well, it turns out about four months later, it's not so much set in stone after all, is it? No. And so that's- Actually, can I say this? The day I met you a few months ago, we were in a meeting and you raised that and you said, someone who's tracked APRA and mortgage fraud, you said APRA did the right thing for once. You gave them a compliment and already, your, probably your better instinct has been, <laughs> has been confirmed that they've, they've actually scrapped it. Yeah, so they've uh, switched uh, from a 7% minimum floor rate to the prevailing uh, mortgage interest rate plus a 2.5% buffer. Now this will, given uh, the typical uh, uh, loan interest rates that are uh, currently being uh, originated, this can bring down um, the, the total interest rate from about 7 to 6.5, so that does help um, uh, borrowers to take on uh, slightly larger loans. Well, one of the, the day the interest rates were cut to 1%, one 
by the RBA. The headline I saw on the news that night on Channel 9, maybe Ross Greenwood or something, is we could soon see mortgage rates of less than 3%. And if that's true, if that actually happens, you plus, you're talking about a, a total interest rate buffer of under 6%, hmm, hmm. right? And of course, that'll help them make these bigger loans. Um, the question is, will it work? Is any of this actually going to work? Because first of all, what does it mean? What should when the when the public see these the government taking these steps and the authorities you know resorting to these measures? What does it mean is the real state of our of our market? Doesn't it mean shouldn't people be, be interpreting and saying there's nothing spontaneously driven by the market that's going to cause a turnaround? This is all artificial measures trying to create hype to get a turnaround rather than something organic, right? Oh, very much so. Uh, the uh, establishment knows full well there's something uh, up with the ho- um, housing market. It, it's clearly a, gigant- a gigantic bubble. And they've seen it uh, deflating since 2017. And so now it's uh, panic stations um, after two years. So they've all gone in, in the last, just the last few months, um, starting probably a month before the election. Uh, we've seen the um, APRA make the changes. We've seen the RBA. We've seen the Liberals come in with their um, first home buyer subsidy. And, but to an extent, the establishment is somewhat trapped because if you look at our last recession in the early 90s, the RBA cut interest rates from 18% down to 4.75%. That, that's total uh, cut of uh, 13.25 percentage points. Mm. With the GFC, the RBA cut from 7.25 down to 3%. That's uh, 4.25 percentage points. But now uh, they're starting out just back at 1.5. Now they're 1. And we're not even into a, uh, an official uh, recession yet. So the RBA has very little room to manoeuvre. Furthermore, because we're getting to the zero low, lower bound, this is where the bank's uh, net interest margins become compressed. Yep. So unlike in uh, previous years and decades, the banks will not be able to pass on um, the RBA's interest rate cuts as fully as they did uh, back then. So it's going to be even less effective uh, this time around on households that have more debt than last time around and more mortgage stress than last time around, especially when other expenses are building up, et cetera. Um, no, these, these are the, these are, uh, you, you can see the fakery everywhere. So one of the things that they've been crowing about, Philip, is, uh, you know, when they say there could be a turnaround, is we are seeing, well, I saw the, the, the CoreLogic put, put out this daily index that claims that on the daily index, there's been, there's been an increase in prices. Mm-hmm. I don't, how they measure that, I have no idea. Whereas the quarterly index and the annual index are still well down, right? Um, but then they're talking about the auction clearance rates. So this was the big headline. We discussed this in the show last week, but you're quite an expert on this. These auction clearance rates, when people hear this headline, what should they be looking at? Well, first they should uh, take a deep dive in, into the data that gets released um, every weekend. And I compared uh, Sydney, Melbourne and uh, Australia as a whole from 12 months ago to the, uh, to the rates last week. And w- what it showed was that uh, volumes have collapsed, uh, even though the number of sales are a- almost the same, if not slightly higher. Um, so take, for Sydney, for example, this would either imply that the average sales price for a Sydney dwelling has collapsed by 40% or the volume data are too wrong because it's too low 
or the number of headline uh, sales um, that, that have been quoted is too high. Something just doesn't make uh, sense here. So they can't have it both ways. If they want to have these headlines where they say we're having these great sales, they're actually, they have to acknowledge their data means the, the fall in prices is much bigger than anyone has admitted or measured. And we actually don't believe it's that much, right? Um, if, if it's that much, it means Tony Lecantro in Perth has won his bet with Stephen Kukoulos already. Mm. So CoreLogic core maybe should pay that out. So they're, they're either saying that, or if they're saying prices haven't dropped that much, and we don't think there's evidence yet they have, it means the sales figures are completely inflated. Yeah, it's uh, quite a possibility there. No, this is, so these are the things that people have to understand. And, and I, in our last interview, I told the viewers... Stop the show and go get people who are thinking of buying a home because they've got to know this. They're being hyped into the market at the moment, right? Get in, get in, get in. All right. So that's, those are some of the things that have happened since we last talked. And um, when you see that much desperation, you know, the, the, you've, got the, you've, got the, you've got more desperation and less hype six weeks after we had a discussion where it was all hype, mm. right? And that's telling you this ain't turning around um, anytime soon. There may be, I think you've acknowledged this, you can have these little dead cat bounces uh, while it's going down, mm. but people shouldn't misinterpret those. That's right. And on the point of the uh, uh, daily house price index, no housing economist uh, takes that seriously. Right. It's just a marketing gimmick. Yeah. Um, because we know in our um, uh, title system, it takes up to three months for all the sales uh, documentation to find its way into the state level titles offices, which then can be uh, on sent to the, uh, the private sector uh, data um, uh, houses, uh, who then run their uh, tests and smooth out the data and so on. So whatever uh, data uh, that comes out, it'll take up at least to three months. And, and that means for CoreLogic, for Domain, for the ABS, for SQM, so whatever comes out now, don't really uh, take yeah, it seriously. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's an important point. If, it's t if, 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 if there's three months for processing, how can you read anything into one day's figures? Mm. Um, okay, let's now talk about Western Australia. Uh, viewers, regular viewers of the show will know that we've, we had a CEC seminar over there a few weeks ago. We invited the economist, outspoken renegade economist, John Adams, he of, mm. he of Economic Armageddon, to come and address our seminar. And John and I spent a few days before the seminar driving around. And we went to Mandurah, which you know, Philip knows very well. Um, we went to we, suburbs in Perth like Allenbrook, and then we went to the northern area of, of, of Perth, what, right out of town up to, I think it's called Yanchep. I'd actually never been that far north before of Scarborough. Um, and what we saw was rather shocking, right? Now, um, uh, when we went to Mandurah especially, we were, we were told, go to Mandurah, you'll see lots of for sale signs. And we turned off the, off the main road into the, the, one of the roads that take you to, the, to the, uh, the waterfront there. And we started seeing them straight away. Mm. And that, that section of Mandurah um, between the waterfront and the, the, the main road, right, um, so closest to the water, there were for sale signs everywhere. And we only, people have given us feedback. We've only, we've only seen a little bit. Right? And then north of Perth, we saw a lot of stalled development. So we were taken around by an Irish um, person named Owen, really great guy. Owen lived through the crash, the housing crash in Ireland in 2008. And Owen said, admitted to me, if he hadn't gone through that experience, he wouldn't be wary 
um, of things like debt, etc. Now and, and be seeing this. Mm. So he feels like a, a, a um, you know, the only the only person who can see what's going on around him. So he took us to these areas, and he was just, all these stalled developments. They're just been they're just sitting there. Um, he said this this is like what Dublin's like, right? That that have been caught out by the the, the major housing crisis in in Western Australia. So you've seen the show that. Um, uh, John and Martin did, which I appeared on in the interest of the people, which I recommend people watch on the interest of the people channel. It's called the Economic Massacre of Mandurah. Just give us your general impressions of what you saw. Well, I've been to Mandurah, Perth, uh, all throughout WA um, numerous times uh, over the years, and all the way into the uh, G- up to the GFC, Mandurah's uh, it was boom times, uh, according to the uh, the famous Demographia report. Uh, Mandurah was the third most uh, unaffordable region in Australia at the time. And then when the GFC hit, something cracked and it never quite recovered. And uh, the mining boom held it up for a while through, through to 2012-13. And from there, it just came basically off a cliff. Yep. Uh, prices and rents have come down by a third. Um, population um, inflows have weakened. It's very much a, a retirement uh, town. Mm. But for as long as those fly-and-fly fly workers uh, came in and uh, spent, uh, th- things were pretty good. And now it's over the last five years, uh, it, things have taken the tumble for the worse. Now, it's 30% down in uh, nominal terms, but it's even worse in real terms, right? That's Explain right. that difference. Well, it's the difference between nominal and real is just the, um, in the adjustment you make for uh, inflation, which is typically positive, around two to three percent um, per year. Uh, the thing about uh, Perth Mandra during the, the times of the mining boom was that inflation was actually uh, quite higher um, right. due to the much stronger um, um, uh, wage growth and, and a, a lower unemployment rate. But now that's uh, certainly not the case anymore. So it's about forty percent down in real terms in Mandra. And all of WA, which is roughly about 20% down normally, is actually about 30% down. That's right. Um, so when I was there, I had this... We're, we're from the East Coast. We're, you know, John's from near Sydney. I'm from Melbourne, like you, um, Philip. And we'd been looking around our areas, and we haven't seen anything yet here like WA. And so my impression when I saw this is, oh, my God, if the rest of Australia was like this... Australian banks would all be, already be in trouble. That's what I wanted to put to you. Do you think how much trouble do you think the banks were in would be in if the big markets like Sydney and Melbourne become like Western Australia and Mandurah? They would probably uh, come very close to insolvency. Uh, definitely, the uh, NPL's uh, non-performing loan rate uh, would uh, rise uh, much higher. They'd have a lot more uh, bad and doubtful debts to deal with on their books. And that is why the establishment is in such a panic. They don't particularly mind, mind that if places like Perth, uh, Mandurah or regional Queensland or uh, Darwin uh, take a bit of a hit because by value they yeah. account for two smaller, Small um, markets. Two smaller pieces of the pie uh, in Australia. But overwhelmingly, um, uh, Victoria and New South Wales or Melbourne and Sydney account for uh, just over two-thirds of all value of all property in Australia. So this is where the action is. And that's why the uh, establishment is now gone all out with APRA making changes, RBA cutting. And don't forget, the uh, RBA is already engaged in QE. Yep. It's targeting bank funding costs. 
and soon it's going to uh, uh, move over to targeting um, uh, government treasuries and then it'll move over to uh, targeting um, uh, the bank's um, ABS and RMBS um, securities um, uh, even more so than they've done to try and force down the yields and the funding costs in order to lower the mortgage interest rates. So they, they would, when you say targeting those things, that these are asset-backed securities and residential mortgage-backed securities, the RBA would let the banks sell those to them so they can inject more money into them. Pretty much. And uh, by doing that, by purchasing them en masse, uh, they can lower the, the yields. Yeah. And um, uh, the intention is to try and lower the mortgage interest rate to try and uh, get more uh, uh, lending happening. One of the reasons I had this sense that this meant, you know, translating WA to the rest of Australia meant trouble for the banks is from our last interview, you explained how at a, you know, um, something like 20% down, you know, this is when banks would, would start reaching clusters of mortgages that have been structured to avoid things like lenders mortgage insurance, et cetera. And if it would mean a lot of, a lot of mortgages don't have any equity anymore, and the banks have to start putting up capital against those things, right? And how, you know, when it's the Sydney and when it's the Perth market, we might be seeing signs of that. We've, we've heard reports that some banks are just black banning whole areas mm. and they're not lending to them anymore and maybe trying to draw money out of it, right? But in the big markets here, where would they get the money from to be able to hold, that, hold the extra capital against those Well, that's the thing. The, the, the banks are currently in a squeeze at the moment, especially the big four. And that's why they're currently, um, we're seeing reduced profitability, which is one of the reasons, probably the major reason, as to why they're cutting thousands from their workforce. Mm. Because they're not being able to lend out as freely as they were, they're having to look to other areas of their business to uh, increase short-term quarterly profit. And unfortunately, the workforce is um, one of those um, methods. All right. Um, you and I spoke recently since our last our last interview. Uh, it got a lot of attention what we what we talked about, and people contacted you mm. with extra information. I want to talk about some of those things now because they're worth um, explaining to the viewer the kinds of things that the banks do get up to to try and pretend that everything's okay, yep. right? So one of those things was um, which which was fascinating to me is banks splitting loans on their own books at the back end. So what did you hear about that? So since uh, the last episode aired, I had a, a couple of people contact me from um, in and around uh, industry. And they were telling me what, what the banks do is that on the front end, a borrower just may see their, their plain mortgage, say half a million dollars, um, yep. principal and interest. Um, that's just apple pie kind of stuff. But on your back end, uh, the bank could um, uh, split it up um, into four, five, six, um, segments, and the purpose for this is to um, uh, basically uh, hold down um, the loan-to-value ratios, and to also originate more interest-only loans, but to then disguise them as principal and interest. Right. So, for instance, if you had, uh, say, a million-dollar mortgage, you had um, at the front end it just looked like one plain mortgage, but on the back end, they have cut into four segments. What the first segment is a $700,000 interest only loan. And then you have the, the last uh, 300000 cut into three portions of principal and interest, uh, so three P&I mortgages. Uh, but because the bank then uses an unweighted um, LVR methodology, uh, 
Um, there are, by LVR, that's 75% principal and interest and only 25% um, interest only. Right. And so to the, um, to the borrower and also to the data they provide to the regulators, the credit rating agencies and um, uh, auditors, it, it seems like a standard uh, principal and interest loan. Well, so okay. In case people missed that, just to interpret it, because this is what unweighted means. There's 700,000 and three... A million is divided into one lot of 700,000 and three lots of 100,000. Yep. But that's four parts. And they can use an unweighted average where they, they claim they are four quarters of the mortgage yep. and present their figures to the regulators and their own... They're fooling themselves. We discussed this last time. They're actually fooling themselves if they if they want to if they're doing this, mm, right? Mm. Um, but this is the sort of trick, and it's it's clearly fraud. I mean, what you know, what other intention is there? This is the sort of trick they're prepared to resort to just to pretend their books are better than they are. Well, uh, with the onset of neoliberal privatisation deregulation since the eighties, the banks have had a long time to optimise um, their uh, mortgage systems to produce the outcomes they want. No, no, we're seeing that. Um, uh, you've been warning or, or, or you've, you've warned a little bit about this. We're in this period starting uh, last year or actually the year before perhaps um, where the, the way the big spike in interest only lending from started in 2012 have been resetting because it's generally, you know, takes after about the, the, main lend, the main reset is five years later, mm-hmm. right? We're in that. And... You're pointing out we're not through the worst of it yet, but the big, the, the worst of these interest-only loans are coming in 2022. Why are they the worst ones? Well, the interest-only uh, reset is from five-year period from 2018, um, uh, 19, 20, 21, 22, and the reason being is that the the first uh, year of resets we're seeing in 2018, that was uh, a, a vintage from. Uh, of interest-only loans that were originated five years ago. So we're talking about, you know, 2013, 2014 vintage, and that's when the boom uh, began in Melbourne and Sydney. Whereas if you get to the peak, which is 2016, 2017, that was the peak of when the the largest, most fraudulent interest-only loans were originated by the banks. Bigger loans, crazier terms, all based on the household expenditure measure, et cetera. That's right, and uh, lending against the equity um, um, in your previous property to buy the new property to add to your portfolio. And so we, we saw, as I said, the loan-to-income ratios uh, going 10, 11, 12 times in Melbourne and Sydney. So you have these uh, enormous uh, interest-only loans, and the reason being is that um, they can't, uh, the borrowers could never take out principal and interest because no. they couldn't afford it. And so the, when we get into 2021, 2022, um, uh, towards the end of the interest-only rollover, that's when the worst of the worst of these um, loans will be converted. And already, I- even with the 2013-14 vintages, a lot of borrowers um, cannot make the principal and interest payments, even if the new principal and interest loan has a lower interest rate. It's just that the total um, debt payments balloon anywhere from 20 to 50% depending on the uh, size and um, terms of the uh, loan. So this is already wreaking havoc. We're, we're seeing that, but you're saying we ain't seen nothing yet. That's right, because we're only one and a half years into a five-year conversion. Yeah. So it's, it's not something that's going to happen straight away, but as time goes on, 
we have more and more loans um, converting, including larger and larger, more fraudulent ones, and that's going to cause uh, quite a bit of trouble. Well, tell me what you think of this. One of the um, uh, people we chatted with in Western Australia when we were there is a mortgage broker who insisted that the market didn't have to be in the trouble it was in if the banks allowed... The, the, the broker said the banks had a policy of allowing investors to, have, to pay interest only for 10 years and if they could just continue that, interest only in, in perpetuity, there wouldn't be any reason for the investors to bail out. That's what we were being told by a mortgage broker would be the solution to the WA property market. That's just typical uh, you know, thinking by the industry, just uh, think on themselves and no one else. These type of loans, if the only reason banks can originate them uh, because the borrowers cannot pay uh, the principal and interest, it's clearly not good for the individual risk um, for the borrower and also systemic risk um, uh, yeah. across the, um, the system. It, Interest-only loans should have been made uh, illegal a long time ago. Yeah, for sure. And um, I was always struck when I read the the, uh, the Phil Angelini's report of the global financial crisis in America. Very telling line in there. The maximum their interest-only loans got to was 25% of all lending. And this, this was in 2006 in the United mm -hmm. States. We got to close to 50% um, in 2017, 2016-2017. Uh, okay. Slight change of of, uh, of of speed. You're an expert on mortgage fraud. I did want to get your thoughts on another form of fraud. So this week, we've heard the news that they found yet another building in Sydney, which is crumbling due to poor construction standards. This one was actually the first. This was before Opal Tower. They had to evacuate at the middle of last year, but they kept it cover up. And it's a joke. All the, the we were just be, you and I were just being briefed on the details. Everything about it, the, the, the standards are so shoddy, it's not funny. Um, so there's, there's officially four. They're coming in fast succession now. Gladys Berejiklian announced that self-regulation hasn't worked. Oh, duh. But isn't it... I mean, what better word for it is, it, is there than fraud? Oh, pretty much. Um, in the uh, mid to late 1990s, um, both the state and liberal... Uh, Governments uh, deregulated uh, building uh, surveillance and inspection, and so now that the uh, uh, the developer and the builder were allowed to uh, hire uh, an inspector to sign off on their work, but this is what led to uh, what's called a Gresham's law: uh, the bad drives out the good. And in this case, it was a race to the bottom. Yep. Uh, the uh, private inspectors that basically rubber stamped and gave what the, builder, uh, the builders and the developers wanted to see were the ones that, get, uh, that got hired. And of course that led to a race to the bottom in terms of uh, rubber stamping uh, the most appalling standards. And, and we know how bad it is. Uh, for instance, in 2012, uh, a report from the University of New South Wales showed that 85% of all apartment complexes built since the year 2000 had some sort of um, uh, serious uh, uh, construction faults and a more recent one from Deakin and Griffith universities showed that around 75% uh, of all apartment complexes um, on the east coast have um, some sort of uh, severe construction faults and the average number of faults per shoddy construction um, was about 11. Wow. And at, in terms of the type of faults that we're seeing 
uh, by far and away the worst is um, uh, bad waterproofing yeah. um, and electricals, um, which leads to mould. Uh, this is something that Edward Almeida has pointed out uh, constantly. Uh, the second is um, poor fireproofing, uh, fire hazards, um, all that type of stuff. And the third is, of course, um, the, the cracking and the poor, poor uh, uh, foundations. Uh, we're typically seeing um, manifest it itself in the car parks first uh, and then works its way up. Yep. And those things, especially the, uh, as Edwin explains, the, 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 the main cause of the bad waterproofing is just speed. They're mm, trying to get mm. these things up way too fast because they're, they're not building for, they're not thinking about the people living in there. <laughs> that's an afterthought. <laughs> that, and that's the crazy thing about the bubble. The, 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 the actual purpose of a home, which is to live in it, goes right out the window and it's all about, it's your bank account now, it's your, it's your, it's your nest egg, it's, your, it's um, a way for someone to make a quick buck. Right? But even worse, um, it typically takes around five years for uh, these faults to start manifesting. So that means what we're seeing now pre pretty much comes out of the vintage of uh, apartments uh, complexes that were built, uh, uh, say, a half decade ago. Yeah, right. So what's been built during the boom, 2013, 2017, uh, will soon start to manifest. And then right now, uh, we've got about 100,000 apartments still under construction on the um, East Coast. And it would be horrifying to see what kind of um, standards they've been built to. Um, even now, Edwin... Um, has been showing pictures of um, buildings that are currently under construction and they're already cracking. Well, we call Edwin Almeida undersupply because he's the guy who's been warning all the time there was, there was an oversupply. Um, but the, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the problems that he has sort of been the, the, uh, the lone voice blowing the whistle on for a long time, people are starting to get that this is, this is serious. I was just struck by what you just said because I think people um, uh, need to have this more at the forefront of their mind that there's that that there was a as bad as this this period has been for 20 years. There's been a much more intense period from 2012 to 2017 and even now. But that period was where the the worst of the speculation, the worst of the the, the poor lending standards, the worst of the fraud, all happened in that era, era that that period. And we can therefore expect, as you've said, the worst of the construction standards will have been in that era. We've seen a couple with like Opal Tower was yeah. built in that, that time, etc. So, and, and that's why you're saying that the, the, um, the mortgage resets from that era, we haven't seen anything yet. So we're, we're on the, we've got a bad legacy here of dealing with a very um, reckless era of development in this bubble that the, we're probably only just beginning to see the sides of the problem. Well, that's right. And uh, as Edwin has mentioned, it's just not the apartment complexes, the big ones that, that get the, the media attention. He says the poor construction standards are rife all throughout the smaller, newer um, apartment complexes, um, houses and townhouses as well. Um, but when it comes to uh, the larger apartments, a lot of this is, um, well, when the faults do arise, a lot of this is um, settled as quietly as possible yeah. because the owners obviously don't want media attention to this because that could uh, lower the, um, the, the price of their um, apartments and nobody wants that. No, for sure. And you've also got the, flaming cladder, uh, the, the flammable cladding uh, scandal as well. Uh, with the state governments that are sitting on their reports, they've got their own databases of all the affected um, properties, but they refuse to release it because that would um, devalue 
the, um, the value of the properties for the owners. But there's also an ethical dimension to this. And, and that is, you know, people may, be, uh, may become a bag holder because they purchase uh, a property that's known to have this kind of flammable cladding or any other kind of uh, fault. And, and they're lumped with it, uh, even though people knew beforehand that it was shoddy. That's, that raises ethical issues. Which, which the governments are complicit in. Of course. Right? This is so much of everything we've talked about. We've got to change the language and start calling it for what it is, which is fraud, which is crimes. And, you know, we're, we're, we share our disappointment with the uh, Royal Commission. It barely touched the sides of all these problems because it's not, you know, it's the banks, it's the governments all have been complicit in this mess that is now our economy and our financial system. So on that note, just one last thing I wanted your, wanted your thoughts on. Um, what are your sort of, what's your sense going forward in the short term, the, the, in the medium term, where things may end up? Um, you know, you're the one who said six weeks ago, you didn't think all the hype meant, measured up to anything. And I think you've been right on that. Where do you think uh, things are, will be going soon, uh, the way things are panning out? Well, we're seeing a, a number of uh, quite powerful uh, tailwinds uh, basically meet up with a, a large number of headwinds. And so it's possible we might uh, see a shallowing out of uh, falling house price growth, maybe even some um, positive uh, price growth um, in a couple of dead cat bounces um, because the uh, establishment is essentially running out of ammo. Yeah. Um, the RBA is at record low levels. QE will have a limited effect. Um, APRA, uh, it would look very embarrassing for them to keep on uh, cutting their, um, uh, their buffer rate um, uh, too much too soon. Yeah. And uh, one very important um, issue that's uh, yet to um, manifest is the court case between Westpac and ASIC over yes. the use of the uh, HEM. And uh, that could swing either way. And even if, uh, I've heard from the, down the grapevine, that even if uh, ASIC loses the case and the industry is allowed to use uh, um, HEM, uh, ASIC will still move to try and uh, push the banks to commit to uh, using verified expenses. So that may not be such a win for the banks as they would uh, prefer. But nevertheless, um, it's probably a couple of dead cat bounces, uh, some um, stagnation in, uh, in the market. But the thing about it is that over two thirds of property investors are running a, a negative carry, they're negatively yep. geared. Yep. So they're very much dependent upon uh, not just um, uh, small price growth, but very strong price growth yep. to cover those losses and to also make a profit. And if that doesn't eventuate over the next uh, you know, six to 12 months, it's gonna be big trouble in the um, housing market. And I think one of the things that it just seems to me is to get the turnaround they want, they need the borrower to share the, to, 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 to catch onto the enthusiasm they're trying to generate. But it's easier for a borrower to be enthusiastic when they're seeing prices soaring, or they mm. want to get in, yep. but they're not seeing prices soaring. So they've got to be, they've got to be take it on faith. And all, instead all they've seen, and it's not clear to me how they're actually going to create that enthusiasm and confidence when, aren't, by all their desperate measures, aren't they undermining confidence themselves? I mean, if you're paying attention, you're thinking, boy, this government's desperate. If they're so desperate, do I want to be the one? I mean, you use the analogy of World War 
one trench warfare. <laughs> Send them over the top into the machine gun nest. Do I want to be the, if the borrower thinks of themselves like that, do I want to be that person? Uh, that's right. Do you want to catch a falling knife? Um, and clearly, uh, you know, Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, has been saying we've got a strong economy, strong economy. He's been saying that ad nauseum. But if you look at the, uh, the facts, it, we've got a weakening economy. And for the establishment to move so quickly just over the last couple of months with all these um, changes when both Philip Lowe said the next interest rate move would be up and for Wayne Byers who said in February that no matter how the housing market trends, uh, the 7% serviceability rate will, will, will be there to stay. And yet we've all seen quick U-turns. So it, it leads me to believe that something in the last couple of months has cracked in the system. Maybe um, residential construction loan uh, market, something's gone wrong there. But of course the um, establishment would prefer to treat us like mushrooms, keep us in the dark and feed us rot. Uh, that's their method. And of course um, public relations rot-wise, they say, oh yeah, everything's fine. Um, so it's difficult to trust what they say, especially given how fast they've been moving the last couple of months to cut, cut, cut. And we were going to mention this before in relation to Western Australia, but let's mention it now in as a final thing. This, this is an example of where even a scheme that the government has latched onto as, oh, this could change things, this could turn around, which is this key start um, mortgage entry scheme mm. in Western Australia, which I'll get to explain. It, it, what, what used to work seemingly really well, um, if they're relying on that, that's not going to work. So how did, what's, what's the deal with key start in Western Australia? Well, it's basically a, a shared equity um uh, policy uh, between the, uh, the Western Australian government and um, uh, borrowers, uh, the, the government would help them get into the housing market generally for um, you know, low to middle um, uh, value properties. And things were great as, uh, for as long as uh, prices were rising, um, they could refinance. But now that uh, prices... So just to explain that, so what the government would do was is, um, uh, let people in on something like 2% deposit Yep. but at a higher interest rate for, a, for a, 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 an introductory period of time. Mm. And the purpose of that was when that introductory period of time ended, because the government was charging a higher interest rate, the borrower was encouraged to go to a bank and refinance to get a lower interest rate, but they already had a foot in the door. This was the logic. They had a bit of equity, yep. foot in the door, and the bank would, would, um, would refinance that loan. That's what's come apart now, right? That's right, because as, for as long as prices kept rising, they would have uh, equity, um, and they could uh, go to a private sector bank and say, look, I've got equity, my LVR is 80, 70, 60%. Can you please uh, refinance me to a lower interest rate loan? And that was fine for as long as prices kept rising. But now we know that um, real house prices actually peaked in 2006 in um, um, Perth and have come down by about 30%. And that's um, a hefty uh, uh, cut, including... Um, a third of the value base in terms of rents have also dropped as well. And so you've got, um, especially in the post-Royal um, Commission um, era, these types of uh, uh, borrowers are simply getting rejected um, when it comes to refinance. So they're trapped in these homes with high LVRs, maybe even over 100%, with um, higher interest rates as well. And, and the whole reason uh, that the um, state government helped them get into the housing market in the first place was that these were not you know, high-income um, households yeah. that they needed help. But now they really, really do need help, 
And I don't think the state government's going to do much of anything to help. No. And a West Australian newspaper did an article on this a couple of weeks ago. We'll, put, we'll show the headline on the screen. They are trapped, these people, now that the prices are going down. And the idea that that scheme could be rolled out around Australia and save the market is just futile. Well, this is um, shades of what we're seeing with um, the Liberals' um, first home buyer subsidy. Yeah. They just brought out on a whim um, just, uh, just before the election. And it wouldn't surprise me if this somehow morphs into a... Uh, a, a much larger program to try and uh, subsidise um, uh, the first home buyers uh, to get in. Yep. All right. Well, Philip, thank you very much again for appearing on the CEC report. Um, the, Philip gives really good insights into the way this property prices intersects the banks. It's why the CEC is pushing hard for policies like um, Glass-Steagall, so you can reform the banks structurally, so they don't get into this kind of behaviour again. It's why we're pushing for an audit of the banks. We need the, the Auditor General should be auditing them to see what exactly what landmines are lurking there on their books, right? Because the government is going to be on the hook for them when it all goes pear-shaped. Um, and it's why we, you know, because of those, these things are um, uh, real dangers in the system, it's why we're, we're opposed to policies like bail-in because it's mainly because it could be used, right? And, we, and, and you, you, the viewer, therefore, has to pay for the crimes of the banks through losing your own money. Um, so we'll keep pushing on with that fight. Again, Philip, thanks for joining us on the CEC report. Thanks to the viewer for watching. Tune in next time for more.